This morning, more than 120 million Americans are under heat warnings, watches, or advisories. Flirting with the 100 degree mark for your feels like temperature. Feels like temperature at 101. Temperatures are expected to climb into the 80s in Alaska today. That's actually a slight dip from the record breaking 90 degrees in Anchorage and two other cities on the 4th of July. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Summer is here, and that means hot weather and lots of complaints about heat and humidity. Based on today's podcast conversation, we haven't seen anything yet. And stick around after the interview for our new segment, Science for the Win, with Cynthia Duraco. According to European researchers, June 2019 was the hottest month recorded both in Europe and in the entire world, a fact that just makes the July heat here in Boston feel so much more ominous. After the recent heat waves in Europe, in regions that are usually temperate, I have a feeling that extreme temperatures will be the new normal there and on this side of the Atlantic. But this isn't the Gut Feeling podcast. This is the Gut Science podcast, and we're here for the data. So I sat down with my colleague, Christy Dahl, a senior climate scientist with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's talking to me fresh off the release of her report on extreme heat, which is the consequence of climate change that will affect more people than any other. And just in case that didn't hit you hard enough, the full title of her team's report is Killer Heat in the United States, Climate Choices and a Future of Dangerously Hot Days. As we dive into the details of her team's analysis, Christy and I talk about what climate models are and how they can forecast decades into the future, about the heat index, aka the quote, feels like, unquote, temperature in your weather app, and about the hard questions ahead, like what will happen as more regions more often see conditions so far off the charts that the heat index tool can't even say how hot it feels. And the most important question, What are our chances of stopping this? And what do we have to do now? Christy, thanks for joining me on the Got Science podcast. Thanks for having me, Colleen. So you've just finished an analysis looking at extreme heat and climate change. Why did you and your colleagues decide to do this analysis? Well, for many years, we'd been working on sea level rise. And while sea level rise will affect millions of people over the course of the coming decades, it's also a very coastal problem. It's limited to a really narrow band along the coast. And it's just one of many, many potential impacts of climate change. So as we saw our sea level rise work build, we thought we would like to be engaging people who live away from the coasts as well in places that may not experience something like sea level rise, but will certainly be feeling the effects of climate change. So we turned to extreme heat. So what data did you use and what was the methodology? Sure. So we used climate models to try to understand how extreme heat will change in the future. And when scientists use climate models, the best practice is not to just use one model, but to use many. There are dozens of climate models that have been developed all over the world And what we've done is taken a suite of those, we used 18 of them, and each of those models ran the same experiment, and then we averaged the results from those climate models. 
So we specifically take the temperature data and the relative humidity data. Those are the two components of what's called the heat index or the feels like temperature. And we have daily data from each of those climate models that allowed us to see what the heat index was on any given day between now and the year 2100. And we use that daily data to ask the question, how often would the heat index be above a certain temperature, above 100 degrees Fahrenheit? So for each of those models, we looked at the number of days above those different temperature thresholds we were interested in, and then we averaged that number of days over all those climate models to get sort of a coherent result. What is a climate model? You can think of a climate model as a giant computer program that you have fed information into. And that information includes things like how the oceans circulate, how water exchanges between the oceans and the atmosphere, how ice forms in the Arctic in the winter and recedes in the summer. So essentially, it's all of the physics that we know about our planet. And then you can force those climate models with different questions or scenarios. You can say, okay, climate model, what happens if we increase the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere from now through the end of the century? And the climate model will give you an answer, right? It will show you at every point on the earth what the temperature changes, what the humidity changes, how it changes the winds. And so that's how scientists do these experiments to say, what happens if we start decreasing emissions now versus letting them go up and up and up through the end of the century? Talk to me about the time frame that you covered in the analysis. So we looked at the period from 1970 through 2000, and we used that as our historical baseline. Then we looked at mid-century and used 30 years centered around the year 2050. And we looked at the end of the 21st century, the last 30 years of this century. The reason we use 30 years is because there's a lot of variability in our climate from year to year. And you can think of things like El Nino, which happens every three to five years, right, and creates very different conditions on Earth's surface depending on where you are in that cycle, right? So... We use a 30-year period to make sure we're getting what we call a climatological average. And what did you find? So what we found that is that overall for the country, just by mid-century, there's a doubling in the number of days with a heat index above 100. And we also found that there's a tripling in the number of days with a heat index above 105. And we also looked at these off-the-charts kinds of conditions. And this is a really fascinating concept that's not something, to our knowledge, that anyone's looked at before. The heat index was designed to be calculated and to be valid for conditions that we experience on Earth today. The thing is that as climate warms our overall temperatures, we're going to be getting outside of the range that the heat index was designed to calculate. So right now in our country, the only place where we have these conditions that we call off the charts, where we can't reliably calculate a heat index, are in the Sonoran Desert. That's southern Arizona, very southern edge of California. And even there, there are only two or three of these sorts of days each year historically. But what we found was that by mid-century, 
about 25% of the country by area would experience these conditions at least once a year. Let's talk about the heat index for a minute. You said the, the feels-like temperature, and that's often you hear in a weather report. It's going to feel like X. Tell me what exactly the heat index is. Sure. So the heat index is a combination of temperature and relative humidity. And you can think of it this way. If you were in your car sitting in Arizona and the, the dashboard temperature on your car was 90 degrees, when you stepped out of the car, you would feel one thing in Arizona. But if you drove your car to, say, South Carolina, and the dashboard temperature said 90 degrees, when you stepped out, it would likely feel very much hotter, right? Because South Carolina tends to be a much more humid place. So our bodies don't just experience temperature. They experience this combination of temperature and humidity. When the humidity is high, the temperature feels much hotter. So what's happening to the human body? Why does that happen? A lot of things happen to the human body as the heat index goes up. As temperature increases, our hearts have to pump blood faster, and we start to pull water away from the core of our body and toward the skin. That's why your skin becomes flushed when it's hotter. But as that happens, there's a risk of dehydration. There's a risk of your organs, like your kidneys, not having enough fluid to function properly. So all of those changes are happening physiologically in your body as the heat index rises. And the important part about humidity and how it factors into our experience of heat is that when it's very humid outside and there's a lot of water vapor in the air, it's actually harder for your body to cool itself by sweating because it's the evaporation of that sweat that cools you off. When it's more humid, that evaporation is harder. So ideally, in a humid area where you're sweating and cooling your body, you're still you're replenishing by drinking water, you're replenishing yourself. Absolutely. But in this extreme heat, your body can't release its own water, so you're just heating up in, inside, you're essentially. You're just heating up, that's right. And rehydrating is incredibly important, and it's one of the reasons why um, children are more vulnerable when there's extreme heat because they often don't recognize that need to rehydrate. And so they tend to become dehydrated more quickly. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you want to get directly to the analysis, go to ucsusa.org slash killerheat. We'll be doing a follow-up podcast in Spanish and English, looking at the people and communities most affected by extreme heat. So look for that later in the summer. Now let's get back to our interview. How disruptive will this extreme heat be for people that are living in the hardest hit regions? Mm. There are a couple of different ways to think about which regions will be hardest hit by changes in extreme heat. You could argue that it would be places like the South 
of Florida. So right now, Orlando, Florida experiences about 20 days with a heat index above 100. So that's about three weeks. If we look to mid-century, depending on what scenario we look at, in Orlando, they could be experiencing between 87 and 107 days with a heat index above 100. Um, And if we look at late century in Orlando, the end of the century, they could see over 140 days per year with a heat index above 100. And some of those days would be even hotter. So there'd be about 110 days where the heat index would be above 105 and uh, about 15 days that would have off the charts conditions where we can't even really calculate a heat index. So this is, many people in Florida have air conditioning, but many people don't. And this type of weather sounds dangerous. It is. It is dangerous. And the danger of this type of heat in Florida was really highlighted in the wake of Hurricane Irma in 2017. So Irma came up the Florida peninsula from south to north and caused widespread power outages for thousands of people. Without the air conditioning, there were about 12 residents of a nursing home who died because of extreme heat. So it wasn't the storm itself that caused it, but the lack of air conditioning and the heat wave that followed. And that happened with a heat index that hovered right around 100 degrees for a couple of days. So some of the heat we're talking about is even more extreme than that. But we're also for people who work outside who just don't have access to air conditioning, but I'm imagining landscapers. Construction workers, farm workers, yes. Exactly. We all rely on a huge group of people in this country who do work outside in conditions where they can't have air conditioning. So they either lose work or they potentially lose their health. And that's one of the big problems with trying to understand the impact of extreme heat on outdoor workers. So if you think of a migrant farm worker, for example, that person may be getting paid by the pound or by the bushel. And if they don't have the opportunity to pick or harvest, then they're not getting paid. And so there is a disincentive to reporting that you're feeling uncomfortable due to heat. There's a disincentive for taking the breaks that you need in order to rehydrate, to sit in the shade. So we know that incidences of heat-related illness in outdoor workers, particularly in the agriculture sector, are underreported. So what areas of the United States will be hardest hit? In terms of the absolute number of extremely high heat index days, it's places that you wouldn't find surprising, right? The southern parts of Texas, Florida, the deep Gulf Coast states, Louisiana, Mississippi. But then there are places like New England, right, where the absolute number of days that they'll be experiencing of extreme heat in the future is much lower than a place like Texas. But the people who live there are much less accustomed to it, and the infrastructure isn't designed for it. So in Texas, most buildings, most homes are air-conditioned. That's not necessarily the case in New England. Or in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, 
nobody has air conditioning. No schools are air conditioned. And so when an extreme heat event hits in these kinds of places, it has an outsized impact. Well, also, if you then have to air condition a lot more places, then you're not exactly reducing emissions. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The solution here can't be simply add air conditioning because that's extremely energy intensive. And we know that it's at these times when our energy demand is the greatest that the energy we're getting is the dirtiest because we have to turn on additional power plants that are typically burning coal. So we know that any response that we design for adapting to a future of extreme heat has to be coupled with one that is addressing clean energy infrastructure. So these extreme heat days that are above the current heat index chart, we don't even have a name for that. Will a new chart be developed or will the heat index be expanded? That's a great question. Have you come up with any good names for this new? (laughs) Believe me, we've thought of all sorts of names. And it's a challenge to even describe what these days are like. Um, and given that so few people in the United States experience these conditions today, it's it's hard to know what uh, what they even imply for us in terms of human health. I think the question of how we handle the fact that we can't calculate a heat index is an interesting one. And I think one that we can surmount, right? We can figure out other ways to describe the feeling of this heat. And some of them may be mathematical. There may be other measures that combine heat and humidity that don't have this upper limit like the heat index does. But I think it also raises this interesting question of how we communicate that risk to the public. So right now, the National Weather Service issues heat advisories and excessive heat warnings that alert people to the fact that there are unsafe conditions outside. Typically, when the heat index is expected to be above 100, they issue a heat advisory. And that'll say things like, make sure you're drinking water, don't leave pets and children in parked cars, children and elderly are particularly at risk, check in on your neighbors, things like that. And at 105 heat index, they'll issue an excessive heat warning which communicates that this is a risk not just for those sensitive groups, but for everyone. But how do we start to communicate when conditions surpass that, right? And how will the National Weather Service take that on and say, okay, this is heat that's a different category, right? And interestingly, we've heard from many local National Weather Service offices that They're concerned about issuing too many heat warnings because people get desensitized to it and they don't take it as seriously. So given that that's the case, you know, we need to make sure that we're designing systems that really communicate the risk to people of these off-the-charts, extremely hazardous days. Is there anything we can do? There's a lot that we can do here. And one of the most exciting things about our analysis is that it points to the incredible impact that emissions reductions can have, not just in the long term, at the late century time frame, but even in the mid-century time frame. We looked at two different emissions scenarios, a higher emissions scenario where it's our heat trapping gases continue to rise in kind of a business as usual, no change through the end of the century. 
We also looked at a lower emissions scenario where we aim to cap future global warming to less than two degrees above the pre-industrial levels. So it's important to note we already have undergone about a degree of that warming. We don't have a whole lot left until we hit that two degree mark. And it would require really substantial, fast, dramatic reductions in our greenhouse gas emissions. But when we look at the difference between those two scenarios, it's incredible. By late century, if we manage to cap warming to less than two degrees C, we see about half the number of these extremely hot days than we would see with that business as usual scenario. So by rapidly reducing our emissions, we can hold the line, right? We'll still see increases in the number of extremely hot days. There will still be really widespread extreme heat, but we could prevent it from getting a lot worse. Do you think it's realistic that we can reduce emissions in that way, that rapidly? That's a great question, and I wish that I had an optimistic answer for you. (laughs) Uh, I think different people have different takes on this. You know, we know that we have a lot of the technology we need, and we know that the problem at this point is largely one of will and politics, particularly in the U.S. So some people look at that problem and say, well, it's just a problem of politics. We can fix that. You know, it's not like a problem that we can't fix, like the sun is getting hotter, right? There's not much we could do about that. We can do something about this. But it is a problem that has been intractable for decades in the U.S. And so while we see really encouraging signs, like the fact that Congress is now discussing climate change at all, like the fact that in states like California and New Mexico, we've passed really inspiring laws that put us on a path to 100% clean energy by the mid-century time frame. They're encouraging signs, but we need so much more. Many of the impacts of climate change would persist for a long time, even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases today. Something like sea level rise has a certain amount baked into the system, but that's much less the case with extreme heat. And the actions that we take today will truly be felt by the children who will become adults in mid-century. So what we do today will have a relatively quick impact on the future of extreme heat. So what that means is that we need to pull together the energy that we already have in this country, and we need to be insisting that our leaders take this on at the federal level to make sure that it's a priority. So if the clean energy momentum that we're seeing already continues, we really have a fighting chance of curbing this. We do. And if you think about the progress that we made during the Obama administration toward um, strengthening fuel economy standards, towards incentivizing clean energy, if we can keep things like that going with the next administration it will give us the best chance we have. Well, Christy, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Colleen. It was great to be with you. And now it's time for the second installment of our new segment, Science for the Win. Cynthia, take it away. Thanks, Colleen. One thing I've learned from working on climate change is that it's important to appreciate incremental progress. Would I absolutely love it if tomorrow all cars were electric and all energy were clean? Of course I would. But it's worth celebrating the small wins, because they add up and they lead to bigger wins. So when I say, 
Hooray! The California Air Resources Board just passed a standard that will replace all fossil fuel burning airport shuttle buses with zero emission battery and fuel cell electric vehicles by 2035. I really mean it. Hooray! California is huge, and it has 13 major airports, including the second busiest in the country, LAX. This standard covers nearly 1,000 shuttles across all 13 of those airports. Transitioning these buses to zero emission technologies by 2035 will reduce global warming emissions by the equivalent of taking almost 7,500 of today's cars off the road each year. And California is projected to save a net $30 million due to lower maintenance and fuel for these vehicles from 2020 to 2040. So the standard is good news on its own. It's really good news when taken with another standard passed last year that requires all public transit buses to be zero emission. And the best news is that these small wins can add up to an even bigger win. Because these policies for electric public transit buses and airport shuttles could pave the way for electric delivery trucks, electric 18-wheelers, and electric garbage trucks. Transportation is the biggest source of global warming emissions in the U.S. and in California. But it doesn't have to be, because many of these heavy-duty vehicles are perfect for electrification, especially those driving around cities. As my most excellent colleague and senior vehicles analyst Jimmy O'Day says, shuttle buses and smaller-sized delivery trucks have the same business in front, just different parties in the back. So electrifying shuttle buses will expand the market for all electric trucks. This is a win for science, and for the Union of Concerned Scientists, too. Because my colleagues in California, like Jimmy, have been working hard to show the technical feasibility of electrification for vehicles like these. And spending time in meetings and legislators' offices advocating for this switch. California and its Air Resources Board are in the process of setting more standards for manufacturers and buyers of electric trucks and buses. So that more and more of these large vehicles will be zero emissions. I assume we'll have more to celebrate soon. Another facet of this win that could have much broader reverberations beyond its scope is the special nature of California itself. Policies that are tested out and implemented in California are sometimes adopted, sometimes quietly, sometimes with much fanfare, in other states and even nationwide. So it's possible that other states on the West Coast and even miles away are watching this rollout and getting ready to implement these measures themselves. And that would do a lot to lower transportation emissions. In the meantime, hooray for electric airport shuttle buses in California. Incremental progress is definitely still progress. I'm Cynthia DiRocco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Christy Dahl. Science for the Win with Cynthia DiRocco. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. And now, a shameless plug. I'm doing a push to promote the Got Science podcast, 
So please tell your friends, colleagues, family, your local barista about the episodes and topics you like. And if you have a sec, please leave us a review. It's quick and easy. Just click on My Library in your podcast app and scroll down to the bottom of the list to ratings and reviews. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.